Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Hello, and welcome to Authentic Living, sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. You know, on our journey through life, we often get lost in a darkness that seems to swallow us whole. We're grieving or we're experiencing a loss. But for many, the dark night of the soul has been separated out from these other times of darkness and considered to be a special time when we cannot seem to access the divine in some way that we previously have. We're going to explore this dark night during our time together today and ask some pertinent questions about what it really means. The Roman Catholic mystic St. John of the Cross coined the term dark night of the soul when he himself encountered such a state in his own person. He proposed that the period of the dark night had two phases, which suggests the meaning of the entire episode, purification of the senses and purification of the spirit. Others, particularly of the Christian tradition, have given it similar meaning in that they say it is a time of intense self-scrutiny in which one becomes more closely aligned with the presence of God by becoming pure. Most who think in these terms, whether from a Christian perspective or not, think of the dark night as a period that comes upon us after we have already become quite advanced in spirituality and sort of blows out the candle so that we cannot see much light or hope. Many tell us that the only, only special seekers, those who have developed a keen awareness, experience this dark night of the soul, and these same people tell us that in this dark night there is a period of initiation that moves us into yet deeper levels of awareness. While I don't disagree that the dark night of the soul can certainly be an initiation into deeper levels of consciousness, I don't agree that it only occurs to special seekers. In fact, it is my studied belief that any form of depression, deep aloneness, deep alienation, or even the typically accompanying anxiety can be turned into a period of initiation into deeper realms of awareness, authenticity, higher spiritual connection, and even joy. You know, psychiatrists might look at someone in a dark night of the soul and say that they were depressed. They might diagnose it and attempt to offer medication to it. Others would say, no, this is a special time of initiation. What I would say is that all of these things can be considered to be dark nights of the soul. Why? Because... Actually, I think of the dark night as an invisible bridge between one level of living and another. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was, uh, was a movie that came out in 1989. And if you've seen that movie, you know that there's a scene in which he's been passing through several uh, metaphorical initiations in which his life was in danger. And at one point, he arrives at the edge, uh, actually a ledge, between two, uh, be- uh, over a canyon. And on the other side of the canyon is the priest who holds the Holy Grail. And on this side of the canyon, there's no connection. He cannot see the bridge between the two sides. And what he does is he takes a handful of sand and tosses it out. And the sand lands on the invisible bridge so that he can then cross it. Of course, that's dubious as well because the bridge is very narrow and crooked, crooked, as 
It would be in any Indiana Jones flick. But the point is that these bridges are often invisible to us because it is our seeing that is dampened in a dark night of the soul. We cannot see how to access the divine. We cannot see how to live life. We cannot see how to experience life on, on the plane that we've come to understand. Uh, you know, the Course in Miracles talks about uh, the idea of specialness. When we think of the dark night of the soul as only applicable to those who are special seekers, what is happening is that we are making those people special. And what I would say is that any time we make one set of people special in any arena, whether it's the ability to access God, the ability to be compassionate, the ability to be ascetic, whatever, we are saying that those people do it for us all. And that's a dangerous mythology because what it does is make me not have to take responsibility for my own um, understanding, higher awareness, consciousness, spirituality, whatever you want to call that. And so what that means is that I'm, I'm really uh, giving someone else the power to do what I will not do in my own life. And so what I would say is we're all on some kind of spiritual journey. And whether you believe in God, whether you are a Buddhist, uh, um, Muslim, whatever your belief systems are, the, the spiritual quest is a, is a way of accessing something that you call a God, a higher power, as you, if you will. It is a way of saying, I recognize divinity in some form. And uh, for many in the New Age, New Thought movement, that divinity is the Imago Dei, as Carl Jung would have put it. It's the self, the authentic self, and that's how I think of it. We have a part of us that is authentic to us. It is very, very real, and it is either wrapped up in the divine so tight we can't tell the difference, or it is divine. And either way, it is a way of accessing the divine. In other words, we'd have to go within to find that place. And the going within is what happens to us when we uh, get into a dark light of the soul. For a while, we flail about as if we're drowning in deep waters. Um, we're, we're, we're scattered. We're, we're not able to concentrate. We can't focus. We can't do our jobs. We can't um, pray. We can't meditate. We can't uh, really even appreciate church or temple or mosque in the as we have in the past. We cannot um, own our own spirituality. It seems foreign to us. It seems distant. What is happening here, I believe, is that we are going into another realm of the authentic self. If I still am wearing a mask in any form, my authentic self is going to want for me to take that off. It wants for me to become wholly authentic, wholly identified with who I am legitimately who I am, who I really am, not who I think I am, not who I've always acted like, not the mask of the victim, the scapegoat, the black sheep, the um, superhero, the bully, none of those, not those, not even this uh, spiritual rescuer for the world. Those masks are attached to ego in a way that says, I survive because I wear this mask. And those eventually have to come off. And in the process of moving from mask to authenticity, we are crossing the invisible bridge. And for a while, we're walking up and down the sides of that thin ledge on one side of the deep ravine, and we're asking, well, who am I? What do I do now? Where do I go from here? 
I don't want to go back. It doesn't feel real anymore. But I can't go forward because I don't know which way to go. That is what I call the dark night of the soul. And it does take the form of a depression. We have all this, a very similar uh, senses of ourselves as, as dark. And, and there's a brooding sense. There's a sense of, of loss. There's a sense of, of grief. There's a sense of forgottenness. And there's a sense in which we cannot seem to find anything to hold on to. So let's talk about that on another level. If we were to compare the depre- what, what a psychiatrist would call a depression with a dark night of the soul that was experienced, say, by St. John of the Cross or other spiritual giants, what we might say is we might compare the symptoms. Let's take anhedonia. Anhedonia is a symptom in which we lose touch with me- any kind of of joy, any kind of um, liking life. We don't sense things very well. You know, we don't taste very well. Smell doesn't happen very good to us. It, uh, we don't, we just sort of lose our interest in living. Life just doesn't have much for us. And our senses take that in, and our mind takes that in, and our body takes that in, and so we begin to just kind of be, eh, so what? What about, you know, life doesn't really mean much at all because I can't feel much. If, I lo- if in the dark night of the soul, on the other hand, if I lose my interest in any form of life experience, including the five senses, could that also be called by some a purification? If I forego my senses, in other words, if I tell myself not to like things or not to engage in certain things, not to eat, not to drink, not to whatever, am I not then trying to sacrifice my attachment to those things that tingle my senses, thus ultimately losing my interest in them? So, you see... If we take the symptom anhedonia and compare it to what others would call the dark night of the soul, they don't sound so different. So do we call it depression? Do we call it a dark night of the soul? I don't think it really matters what we call it. Some have given it that depression name to remove the religious overtones from it. And, uh, and, and certainly I'm not speaking in any, of any particular religion today as I'm talking. What I'm talking about is the darkness that isn't the light. If something isn't the light, then I can't see very well. And that's what we're talking about. Seeing is everything. For many who are spiritual seekers, once they encountered bliss, there is a need to identify with it. And so if, if we meditate and find ourselves suddenly in a state of bliss, we want to hold on to that. And all the Buddhist teachings and all the transcendental teachings and all the, every, all the teachings that we can get about meditation might tell us, don't Attach yourself to that state of bliss, but we want to do it anyway. Why? Because on the other side, it seems like there's nothing but suffering. So we want to identify with it. We want to say, I am that bliss. I am that bliss. And so when we do that, and then we pass through another period in which the lights are off, then it seems pretty dark indeed. Once we felt joy and this, by comparison, pretty bad. So we can identify with anything. Any emotion that flies by, we can identify with it. We can, uh, and very often I see people as a therapist, I see people that do identify wholeheartedly with their emotions as they pass by, and that is where we get the idea of mood swings. If I identify with an emotion of sadness, I might suddenly become depressed. If I identify with an emotion of anxiety, I might suddenly have a panic attack because I'm making it who I am. So my I am, who I am, think I am is everything. When people come in and say, I am depressed, what they're doing is identifying with a, a mood, with a state, with an emotional state. 
Um, and so that I am is very, very important. And so if I identify with bliss and then suddenly find myself in not bliss or in even absence of feeling, then how do I put those two things together and form an identity that is just separate and distinct from those, things, those two things? The fact is, I am not my bliss, and I am not that empty state of darkness. I am, and I am having emotions. You know, one of the things that um, is often said in AA meetings that we, we see on TV, and those of you who are in recovery see and understand in AA meetings and NA meetings and CA meetings is that you come in, you sit down, and you say, hello, my name is Andrea Matthews, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay? And what that says is, I'm identifying myself as an alcoholic. Now, the purpose of that is to avoid denial. But sometimes I wonder if, not, if we're not identifying with that disease and making it the whole of who we are. It might be better, in some instances, to come in and say, Hello, my name is Andrea Matthews, and I have an addiction. That way I'm identifying with myself, not my disease. We're going to talk some more about the dark night of the soul and identification when we come back from the break. This is Authentic Living. I'm Andrea Matthews, your host. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. Are you ready to crash through illusion, break through your personal barriers, and slay the internal nemesis of your dark side? TNT is here to awaken your soul and unravel the hidden messages of your unconscious mind. Discover your hidden treasure map and use TNT to find the tools you need to become your own demolition tech. Collapse the old and choose the new. It's Dynamite Awareness with TNT. Tracy Irons and Tracy McMahon every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network and visit us at www.dynamiteawareness.com. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T, with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. 
Are you in need of a cosmic kick? Are you frustrated with your ability to move forward in all areas of your life and spiritual growth? Adrian Wentworth is a master at getting you unstuck. A fearless and grounded healer and teacher, Adrian covers subjects that few will touch and reveals the missing keys to your success. Be uplifted by the healing energies that flow through her as she shares her profound wisdom and helps you shift past your obstacles to create the life you long for. Listen to Cosmic Kick with Adrian Wentworth every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the 7th Wave Network. Listening on a higher dimension. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Hello and welcome back. This is Andrea Matthews, your host, and we're t- today we're talking about the dark night of the soul. You know, when I see clients in therapy come in and tell me that they're depressed, um, not only do I recognize that they're identifying with depression, but I try to help them to recognize how that happened. We sort of draw a map to the depression. And what you can do is sort of peel back the layers to see where it was that you began to identify with that emotion. If I can have an emotion without identifying with it, then I don't get depressed. I can recognize that emotion. I can listen to that emotion. I can even dialogue with that emotion. I can express that emotion, but I don't have to become that emotion. And that's the difference uh, that I see when we talk about depression as, as that clinical term depression, but also somewhat in the dark night of the soul because identity and attachment are what the dark night of the soul is all about. If I have, for example, an identity as, um, let's say, I'm the scapegoat. I'm in the way it is in Restoring My Soul, a workbook for, all th- for finding and living the authentic self. Um, I've described the scapegoat uh, priest as the person who is, feels very bad on the inside, feels like they're a bad person, and is trying very hard to be very, very good so they can compensate for that sense of worthlessness that's down, way down deep under all that good behavior and smiling face and all that. Um, and they very often take responsibility for caring and taking care of other people, find themselves exhausted because nobody will be there for them, but they're always there for other people. So that's a basic overview of the scapegoat priest. If I'm identified as the scapegoat priest, I don't recognize that as an identity. It is just who I see myself as. I might come into therapy and I might sit down and I might say, well, uh, I'm a very caring person. I take care of other people, but nobody ever seems to be there for me. And that's how I see myself. I don't see that as an identity. I just see that as me. And, uh, but part of the process of therapy is to be able to step back into the observer mode and begin to see that as just an identity instead of who you really are. Because if it were who you really were, you wouldn't have all these other emotions about it. You wouldn't be tired and resentful of other people who can't be there for you. You wouldn't um, be exhausted. Your body wouldn't be speaking to you about sacrificing your body and mind for other people all the time. You wouldn't have those messages coming up as well. So when you hear a conflict inside yourself, you can begin to go, okay, what is that conflict about? What is it telling me? 
And that is the process of, uh, that will help us move through the dark night of the soul. And we're going to talk some more about that for just a minute in, in just a little while. But right now what I want to do is talk a little bit about the concept of death as it appears in the dark night of the soul because it definitely appears. The doors of death sometimes seem ready to open in the dark night of the soul. Life simply is not what it once was. We might even say in some senses that we are dead to that old life. And then sometimes when we go through a dark night of the soul or what some people would call clinical depression, we start thinking about killing ourselves. We start thinking about a way out for several reasons. One, life doesn't seem to hold what it once held. Sometimes we carry shame with us all the way to till its bitter end when it takes our life. Sometimes we are identified with, with uh, the idea of life as something that should be a certain way and it's not, so therefore why am I alive? If it's not the way I think it should be, well, then I'll just get out of it. And so we have to do some rethinking about that. There's lots of reasons what's for what's going on in a suicidal thought. But the basic idea that I try to talk about with clients if they come in with suicidal, what we call in the clinical terms, suicidal ideations, what I do is I try to talk to them about what is dying in their lives. What is going away? What is dying? And that could be a mask and costume is dying. It could be an old relationship is dying. It could be an old way of living is dying. It could be an old belief system is dying. But obviously, if someone comes in my office to talk to me about suicide, all of them, the total of them, is not invested in suicide. Some part of them is, and that part of them may be dying, but another part of them wants to live, and that part of them is sitting there on my sofa talking to me. So what I do is I try to help people get in touch with the part of them that wants to live and, and have the part of them that wants to live explore what it is that literally is dying. And, and, and instead of identifying with that part that is dying, learn to let it go. So I could come in and I could say, well, part of me is dying. I can't be the scapegoat I used to be, and nobody likes me anymore because I won't be their servant anymore. So all these people now are hating me because I've started to speak up for myself, and I don't like that, and I just don't want to live anymore. And so then I can say, now what's happened is I've identified with that old life. It is trying to die, and I am identifying with that it that is trying to die. I am putting my I am on it. I am saying I am the one that wants to die. I am dying. But in fact, I'm not dying. That old mask and costume is dying. That old way of relating is dying. And yes, it is painful. It is a loss, and we will experience it as that. And other people will not like us for a while when we start changing, especially if we've been waiting on them hand and foot or, or serving them or taking care of them to the exclusion of ourselves. They're not going to like it very much when we stop doing that. And we're going to hear from them. And um, they're going to want to try to get us to go back to that old way. And part of us will want to do that. And the other part of us won't. And so we'll be in a conflict. And again, the conflict is there to raise our awareness of what is, are these two sides of this conflict? What is the part of me that doesn't want to be in the conflict um, in that old life saying? What is the part of me that still wants to be in that old life saying? What is the secondary gain I get from being in that old life? Why is it still dragging me back to be in that old life? That's the kind of dialogue we can begin to have when these things come up. So suicidality in terms of its ideations is not 
something that I consider to be uh, a place where uh, we should jump in there and say, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, let me, let me um, rescue you in some kind of way. It is instead a time when we need to do some more research. What are those ideas trying to tell me about what is dying in my life? Now, certainly I will say, if somebody uh, comes in and says, I'm going to go home, Andrea, today and kill myself, I'm certainly going to push all the, the red, right red buttons about that. But if, if someone is, has those ideas in their head, that does not necessarily mean that they are planning on killing themselves. It means that some part of them is dying, and we need to find out what part that is and learn how to gracefully and even sometimes joyfully let it go. And then we can move to a resurrection to a new life. And what that will mean is also some sense of loss. When we resurrect, so to speak, to a new life, what we're doing is filling in the empty places. We're, we're, we're saying, okay, that place that had something there once, that old mask and costume that was the scapegoat, was once there, and now it isn't there, and there's an emptiness there. So what is that emptiness? What is that void? What does that feel like to have that void? And that is a dark night of the soul, a sense of emptiness. The Buddhists would call the emptiness a, a, a good place to go because it's when we're empty out that we can find that the ego sense of self isn't, but rather there's another sense of self that's bigger than that. So what is emptiness? What is below the emptiness? If we think about emptiness in, the, in any sense of the term, we have to recognize that old adage that nature abhors a vacuum. And absolutely, something will come back in there and fill it up. So what are we going to fill it up with? We are going to fill it up. The question is, what will we fill it up with? Will we fill it up with more authenticity? And that's, again, that bridge, uh, that place where we're finding the difference between the side of me that is just so far away from that other side of me where the Holy Grail is. And I can throw out the sand and find that invisible bridge. Or I can stand here shivering and not know what to do. You know, um, there are many, many writers who write about the dark night of the soul or senses of loss and um, uh, that period of finding ourselves. We, we look for something to soothe the pain. And that's so often what we're looking for is the escape from the pain. I want the pain to go away. Very often I hear people who actually get suicidal say, I didn't really want to kill myself. I just wanted the pain to go away. Well, the pain is a sign that you're alive. The pain is giving you a message. Sometimes the pain is your tears for that part of you that is being wounded again and again by a bad relationship. Sometimes the pain is your awareness that you have sacrificed so much of yourself for other people. Sometimes that pain is telling you something very, very important about your life. And if you listen to it and, and give it words, let it speak to you, then you can understand, you can begin to understand what it is that your pain is telling you. So pain is not the enemy. Pain is actually your friend. You know, uh, we don't want to be walking down the beach and step on a big shard of glass and bleed to death without ever knowing that we, we were cut. We want our pain to quickly make us aware that, yes, you've been cut, and yes, there's a problem here, and yes, you need to do something about it. And that's what our pain is for. That, in fact, is what all of our emotions are for. They're meant to be messages from the authentic self to us, for us, about us. 
Um, anger is one of those that we very often want to give to other people. Sorrow is another. I'm, I'm feeling sorrowful or sad because you. I'm sad because you won't do so-and-so. I'm angry because you won't do so-and-so. But in fact, it's not sorrow because you won't. It's sorrow because I'm, I'm feeling the recognition that this particular dynamic is not necessarily working for my authentic self. And so if I hear that message instead of, well, how can I get you to behave right so I don't feel so bad, then what I can begin to do is say, what do I need to do for me to love me better, to take better care of me so that I'm actually performing more in my authenticity? And we're going to talk some more about the dark night of the soul when we come back after the break. This is Andrea Matthews, your host of Authentic Living, host brought to you by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. Awakened Media for a Transforming World, Seventh Wave Network. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance to expect guidance, to trust, and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my Ph.D. in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve, too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit AIHT.edu. All my love. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network.
You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. This is Andrea Matthews, your host of Authentic Living. We've been talking today about the dark night of the soul. And speaking of darkness, we're going to talk a little bit more about that whole concept of death and, and, and even violence, because that is in us. We all can be violent. We all will die eventually. Um, you know, that whole idea of darkness is one we want to typically avoid. We want to stay in the light. We want to be in the light. I find it fascinating that at this juncture in our society, while so many of us are, are seeking more and more mystical levels of spirituality, we are also seeking deeper and deeper levels of the darkness. If you look at a TV show and the violence and the blood and guts and the, and the uh, dark modes and the uh, sexual um, um, abuse that occurs so often in our shows that uh, we you know, Law and Order, you can look at any Law and Order show and see um, that people are killing people and there's violence and there's um, all kinds of depravity, so to speak, on those shows. And some would look at that and they would say, well, that just shows how evil we really are. And some would say that just shows how our society is on a slide into hell. What I would say is something a little bit more interesting, at least to me, and that is that we are exploring the dark regions of the psyche we're beginning to say, okay, let me look at that too. While on the one hand, parts of our society are looking only for the light and the bliss, other parts of our society are looking at the dark, the death, the blood, the, the, uh, the de- desperation inside of us to live so hard that we would take someone else's life, the sexual addiction, the abuse of children, all of that stuff. We're looking at it, and it's in our face, and it's in our homes at night. So we're having to really get down to the dark parts of ourselves. That's what Carl Jung would call the shadow, the part of us that uh, can do any kind of evil there is, if you want to call it evil, Um, but also the part of us that's not really conscious, the part of us that we don't know. And that part is shuffled away into the dark regions of our psyche when we say, all is light and all is good. We don't recognize the shadow. And so... What, what the dark night of the soul is in part is for us to begin to see those darker regions of ourselves. What are those darker regions even there? What is this? Is it our basically innate evil nature? Well, I don't have the end and, all, end and be all answer here. Um, so don't take what I'm saying as the gospel of Andrea Matthews. But, but consider this as a possibility. What if what we call evil is just desperation to survive in some form or another. If I attach, for example, the bully perpetrator identity, very often commits violent crimes and uh, can do, can even go all the way to being a psychopath and being someone who is a serial killer. So if I look at those darknesses and I say, okay, only the bully perpetrator can do that, I could never do that. I'm lying to myself. Any of us could do that. Because any of us could identify with, I know how to get myself to stay alive. I'll just be so bad and so good at being so bad 
that that's how I'll stay alive. And very often, the bully perpetrator comes from a home in which being bad was the only way to get attention. Being bad was the way to get someone to, to look up, to notice. Um, now, I'm not saying that's always the case, and whether there's uh, any kind of genetic component to this, I can't say. But what I am saying is that um, if I identify with my, the bully, if I say, I am bully, then that's how I'm going to live because I'm desperate to stay alive, and I believe that being bad is, is the way to do that. Now, in order for me to have that belief, I've got to have a societal belief that says there's good and there's evil. And we do have that, and that's the duality state. That's a duality, what I call a duality trance state, in which we believe that some things are good and some things are bad. Now, when we come to defining what those things are, it's very difficult for us to do that because we start to say things like, well, it was bad that uh, Osama bin Laden blew up the trade towers. Well, you know, I certainly don't think that was a good thing, but Osama bin Laden and his followers do. So, you know, how, what is good, what is bad, I don't know. It's culturally based. It's very often based in what is your culture, how did you grow up, what did you define as good, what did you define as bad, what did your culture teach you. So what really is good and what really is bad is very difficult to determine if we, put, if we put, were to put one person from all every culture in the world in a single room and ask each one of them what was good and what was bad, we might get lots of different definitions. Now, we do recognize love. We do recognize it when it comes to us. We recognize it when we feel it. So there is some um, authentic nature to some of these things that we call good, like loving kindness and gentleness and understanding and compassion, those things we call good. I don't call them good or bad. I call them realities of the authentic self. They are just parts of the authentic self. So if, if, if we've labeled certain things as good and bad, then it's going to be easier for the bully perpetrator to exist because he's going to identify with one pole of that polarity, which is badness. And there's going to be people like the scapegoat uh, priest who identifies solely with goodness. I've got to be good. Way down in my subconscious or unconscious, I feel really bad. But on, the, on my conscious experience, I'm only a good person. I do loving, compassionate, caring things all the time. And so you see how we can split ourselves off, and certainly our society is split off as well into various segments where we say these people are bad or these people are good, and we've got to weave uh, 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 me and they kind of us and them kind of identification of things. So... That's a part also of the dark night of the soul where we come to terms with our own shadow. And that is essential to becoming authentic. We have to look at all the secondary gains we get out of being in the role. And some of those are not really pretty, especially when we're thinking dualities. Um, it's good to, to not seek secondary gain. It's bad to manipulate. Um, okay, yeah, you can say that if you want, but the truth is we all try to manipulate if, even if I'm pleasing you all the time, sometimes it's because I just want to get you to like me. What is that? It's manipulation. Is that good or is that bad? These are the questions that we begin to ask when we go into the dark night of the soul. We begin to, come to, begin to be able to come to terms with those concepts and ask ourselves some really deep questions about what does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? I can't answer what it means to the world. 
you know, many of us want to. I'd like to be able to stand up here today and say, okay, I've got the answer for everybody. But what a frightening concept. I don't have the answer for anybody but me. And so when I'm looking, going through the dark night of the soul, that's the time when I tap into myself, my deepest and very often hidden self. And that's how consciousness rises to the surface. That's how we raise our consciousness. That's how we become more aware. That's how we wake up. But in order to do that, we have to walk through some shadow material and ask some difficult questions. So what we're talking about here is beginning to develop a dialogue with all the aspects of ourselves, not just the ones that are in the light and filled with bliss, not just the ones that are um, all about being nice and being good and doing the right thing. Um, That's basically what most of our religions teach us is be good, be nice, do the right thing, and pray a lot. Um, and go through these certain rituals, whatever those are for a particular religion, and that will make you into a good person. But what about the shadow that is in all of us? If it gets pushed into the unconscious, then what's happening is there are aspects of myself that I don't know. And if there's aspects of myself that I don't know, then I'm not going to be able to be fully authentic. So to the degree that I say I don't know, that's the degree to which I'm out of touch with my authenticity. And so what I would say is we're, develop, we're learning to develop a dialogue between the varying aspects of ourselves and stand back in the observer mode and listen and watch and look, pay attention. You know, there's a, a, a passage in the Old Testament that talks about the Israelites going across the desert, uh, not a passage, a story in the Old Testament about the Israelites going across the desert. And in one part of that story, serpents come into their, their living area and kill off several of the people. And um, this is supposedly punishment from God, and whether you believe that's true or not doesn't matter. The serpents come into the, to the area and they kill lots of people there, and then they're told to look, Moses is told to make a bronze serpent, a replica of the serpents that poisoned them, and hold it up on a standard in other words, so that everyone can see that. And then tell the people to look at the bronze serpent on the standard. And when they look at the bronze serpent on the standard, they will be healed. Now, we can take that as a literal ritual, or we can take it as metaphor for, for looking. If I'm looking only at the poison wound that is very often a part of my shadow, very often sometimes a part of my upbringing where I was poisoned, I was wounded by parents who abused, me in very horrible ways sometimes. If I'm looking only at that, then I'm not looking at the bronze serpent on the standard. The word bronze is, uh, can be translated to be molded, something that's molded, something that's changed, something that can be transformed. So when I look to the bronze serpent, what I'm looking for is the trans- transformative power of that woundedness. The wound itself can transform me. So if I say I cannot look to the dark side of myself, I cannot look at myself in any terms except I've got to be a good person, I've got to put away all those things that are bad in me, then I'm not looking at that bronze serpent and I won't transform. And my days in the dark night of the soul may be elongated because I'm not really understanding what it came to tell me. And we're going to talk some more about this after the break. This is Andrea Matthews, your host.
Awakened Media for a Transforming World. Seventh Wave Network. I begin each day with an intention to be open to guidance, to expect guidance, to trust and appreciate when guidance comes. With these intentions, each day is easier to navigate. Hi, I'm Sonia Choquette. When I decided to trust my guidance and further my education, I chose the American Institute of Holistic Theology, A-I-H-T. with a soulful pathway to deep learning. In my own home, on my own schedule, I earn my PhD in metaphysics. You know, the value of wisdom only grows, and in developing our own gifts, we can help others evolve too. That's how it works. These self-paced programs in holistic health, metaphysics, holistic ministries, parapsychic science, and holistic theology can embolden your spirit to change the world. And the time has come for us all to do our part in changing the world. So in this moment, call the American Institute of Holistic Theology. The number is 1-800-650-4325. In this moment, visit A-I-H-T dot E-D-U. All my love. Over there, over there's the water. Whoosh, whoosh. And look at all this stuff I'm standing on. It's called sand, and it's everywhere. This woman may sound silly to you and me. It's made up of little tiny pieces of rocks. Teeny little pieces of rocks. But to her two-year-old son exploring the world around him, (laughs) she makes perfect sense. How does it feel when you touch the sand? Is it warm? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard to hold in your hand, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Learning starts long before school does, and children are naturally curious. They want to learn, so follow their lead. Take simple, everyday moments, like sorting laundry or playing on the beach, and turn them into learning moments. Is this water? No. Very good. This is sand. Oh, (laughs) no, no, it's not food. It's sand. We don't eat sand. Turn everyday moments into learning moments. Find out how at bornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back, and we've been talking today about the dark night of the soul. You know, what we've said basically so far is that the dark night of the soul, whether you want to call it a, a depression or not, is actually a time, a period of time when we're being initiated, we're crossing a bridge between one sense of ourselves and another. We're beginning to be able to throw out the sand and find that invisible bridge and cross over to the Holy Grail where we find our Imago Dei, or authentic self. So that's what we've been talking about today. Now, how do we go through this uh, dark night of the soul? Well, first of all, what we have to understand is it, is it has a path of its own. It's like a river. We can't push it. 
we have to be able to say, okay, I'm going to get in this river and let it take me where it's going to take me. But at the same time, we don't want to keep our eyes closed. We don't want to say, well, I'm not looking. I'm not paying attention. I'm not going to gain anything from this. I'm just going to try to make it go away. Um, we, we, that, that process is going to carry itself. So we can trust the process. That's the first step. Is just trust the process. This journey is meant to carry us somewhere. And whether you believe in divine order or whether you believe only that there is a self inside you, either way, the psyche has a way of leaning toward wholeness. So what we're talking about is if, if my psyche is always leaning toward wholeness, then I can surrender to that process and trust that it's going to carry me where, where I'm intended to go. So that's, that's a primary ingredient. We have to be able to just let go and trust the process. The second thing is we can begin to really become examiners, observers. And I don't mean analytical examiners. I mean to sort of look at the messages with a kind of objectivity that says, these are messages. These are not um, parts of me, necessarily. They are messages from me, but they're not necessarily who I am. So I don't have to identify with these messages that are emotions or these things that I see in the dark part of myself. I, I just need to hear them. And so how do we hear them? We can draw them. We can draw pictures of what we feel. We can write letters from those feelings to the authentic self. We can write letters and poems and um, um, all kinds of journal entries about these feelings, trying to say, what is the message? What are you trying to tell me? You know, sometimes people get into journal writing, and I think journal writing is wonderful, except where it doesn't ask that important question. What are you trying to tell me? When we don't ask that question, all we do is get into this long litany of venting all the various complaints in our lives. That's really not going to do anything but make us more depressed. And I certainly have people who do journal who get more and more depressed because they're journaling. So journaling has a purpose, and the purpose isn't just to vent. All the venting is part of it. It is to also ask that really primary question, what are you trying to tell me? So we can listen by doing that. We can talk to other people. Uh, certainly, if you're having a dark night of the soul, seek therapy. Seek a therapist who can help you come to terms with the answers behind the questions that your dark night is trying to get you to come to terms with. So, and, and if, you're, if you're not pleased with your therapist, look for another one. If you are pleased with your therapist, ask those important questions. Help him or her to, to uh, look at you and give you a mirror to look in so that you can say, okay, I see myself more objectively now. Be willing to be objective. If you're identifing with those emotions, those uh, dark parts of yourself, if you're identifying with that part of you that's dying, then you're not going to see it as clearly. But if you can pull back into the observer mode and listen and, and watch and talk to, dialogue with, those parts of you, you will get answers because they're there inside you. The thing is that we've not been taught to trust that we have the answers. We've been taught that our authority figures have the answers. And our authority figures are coming tumbling down in this day and age where once upon a time we thought that the gurus of finance knew exactly what to do. Now we begin to wonder, well, do they really? I don't know. When we once upon a time thought that um, the answers were in our president. Um, lots of people at this day, our statistics are showing us that in this day and time, there's a lot of distrust of our president. 
Um, and that's not a political statement. That's a fact. So if, if we begin to say, I don't necessarily know that these authority figures have the answers, but I can look inside myself and find the answers that are meaningful to me because you know what? If they're not meaningful to you, they don't matter anyway. So if, if you can find answers that are meaningful to you, then that is the true answer for you. And maybe somebody else might have a different answer that works better for them, but your answers are going to work for you. And that's what the whole journey of spirituality is, is to go deeper and deeper into yourself and listen more and more to yourself. Pay attention more and more to the moments of the everyday where um, you can be surprised by joy, even in the midst of a depression, even in the midst of a dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it. You can be surprised by joy. I remember driving down the freeway one day. I had a job that was very difficult for me, and, and I, had a, um, I was going to work, and I was driving and just thinking about how mad I was about such and so and so, and uh, I was really caught up in that moment of my own grief, my own sorrow, my own anger, all that I was going through at that time. And I looked over at the grasses in the median, and I saw... The grass is blowing gently in the wind, and they had little dewdrops on them. And I was just amazed at the beauty of those grasses. And suddenly, I felt this joy just come up inside of me. And I was totally surprised. Now, I could say this was a dark period of my life where, you know, how could somebody just come in and turn on the light? What happened was I looked. I noticed. I paid attention to what was going on in the moment. Yes, I was all caught up for a moment in that blur of emotions going on inside of me, but then I looked and I saw something different. I might even say I looked at the bronze serpent. I looked at the transformative power of a moment. That's what we can do. We can be surprised by joy, even in the midst of our dark night of the soul, when we are pulling back enough to just look. Look at what's really going on inside of us not just identify with it and slide down the slippery slope into the darkness and despair, but begin to say, this darkness is the sacred night. It is the place where I can step out on the balconies of my life and look up into the starry sky and look at that as a mystery because darkness is the mystery. And within the darkness is the mystery of your soul. So if you're not looking down in that well, you're not liable to see the image of yourself come back up when you look at the uh, surface of the water in the well. It is important for us to be able to, to really look, see, listen, pay attention, write poetry, write music, dance, do yoga, get in touch with your body, listen to what you're saying to yourself when someone else is talking to you. Listen to your intuition when you walk into the room. Be like the cat or the dog whose nostrils are flaring back and forth when they walk into a room, they're checking out who's in the room. Check out who's in the room with you. Pay attention to your intuition. These are all ways of going within. And the more you go within, the more you are letting the dark soul, dark night of the soul, talk to you and be your friend and guide you back into the light. Now, will that mean that you will always live in the light after that, after you've experienced the dark night of the soul? Will you always live in the light and bliss after that? No. What is more likely to happen is that you will merge the darkness with the light. You'll be able to walk with one foot in the dark and one foot in the light from then on. And that's a miracle of monumental proportions that we're able to allow ourselves to be dark and light at the same time. 
But that's the journey of wholeness. And so that's what we've talked about today as the dark night of the soul. And if you're experiencing a dark night of the soul, I wish you well on your journey. I wish you the ability to find yourself. Tune in again next week when our guest will be Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.